Number 767. Eddie has just asked that we mark that, and we're delighted to do that. We'll use that later in our service today, of course. And isn't it a blessing that we are able to reflect for the next few moments on a section of the Word of God? You may have noticed already the title is Those Who Have Not Heard. Those Who Have Not Heard. It may be that many particulars could come to mind in light of a title such as that one, but it would be my hope that we could develop at least a particular aspect of it, and that development will begin as you look at this next slide with me. You'll notice that, isn't it true, that there are so many good questions that we can often be asked and that we can consider in light of the Word of God. In fact, as you may have conversation with neighbors and relatives and friends and acquaintances, you may on occasion encounter a very question connected to this lesson title today. This introductory slide will not only begin to develop what that question may well be, but it will also start pointing us to some of the features of our discussion this morning. The justice of God. The absolute character of the act, He always does what's right. It would seem that one of the keenest elements that's a part of at least most sane people, is a sense of justice, a sense of fairness, that we surely do not want some to be treated in a way that is regarded as unfair due to circumstances that may at least in some ways be beyond their control. I think that's something that really struggles within each of us. Isn't it true that David was motivated in part by that when Nathan told him that record, that story you see back in 2 Samuel 12 about how that, that rich guy went and killed the only little ewe lamb that this other poor man had, David became angry. That isn't right and it isn't fair. And then, of course, David came to recognize that the whole person who was the point of that record was himself. Today, why don't we develop that this way? Think about the gospel. The sweet message of which we've just sung. The marvelous, incredible truth that is the basis for really our gathering on an occasion such as this one. What about people in the world who've never heard it? Maybe they live in distant places, born into circumstances that are far beyond their control in ways that they not only have never heard it, but it's unlikely that they will be in circumstances where that will often be cast. That, that will often be the case. What about those who have never heard? Will they be saved? Will there be an extension of God's grace and mercy with regard to that set of circumstances, being mindful of the fact of where they were and the kind of situation in which they were? What do you think? Have you ever been asked that by somebody? As you and I emphasize evangelism, and we emphasize obedience to the faith, and someone says, but what about those that African bushman reared up in some tribe, never heard the gospel, and it's unlikely that at least in the near term that he will. Do you mean to tell me he's lost? Any God that would do that is unfair. Any God that would do that is inequitable and not one that I would wish to serve. Have you had such conversations? Why don't we spend this morning thinking somewhat from the biblical perspective, what about those that have never heard? What does the Word of God share with us concerning that? This next slide 
may I offer at least an initial consideration relative to what I would think could be called clear answers. In other words, aside from any other complications that may well be, and we shall discuss some of them shortly, what could we directly say based on exact specifications from the Word of God? Look at these with me. In Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, no less than the Son of God Himself said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Now those words from the Lord are not, are not at all hard to understand. They are not in any way challenging and they don't stretch our consideration and comprehension. Jesus said that anybody that is saved must believe and is baptized. And anybody that doesn't believe certainly won't be baptized, and those are in a condition of damnation. That's what the Lord said. Look at the next one. I've asked you to consider also this one with me from the 10th chapter of the Roman letter. As Paul addressed the church in Rome, it was to them, he said, All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, what does that directly suggest? What about those that don't call on the name of the Lord? If Paul's words carry significance, and if the language itself has meaning, we understand, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's unpack that English sentence. So who is it that will be saved? It's the one that calls on the name of the Lord. So that person that doesn't, thus has no opportunity. Salvation is not a possibility for that individual. You may recall in the next few verses, Paul went on to say, How shall they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they've not heard? You can begin to see the point of Paul's emphasis with regard to calling on the name of the Lord and those features that were a part of that calling. To call on the name of the Lord involves belief and it involves hearing. Isn't it amazing that the third one will take us to this consideration? Jesus rather powerfully put it like this in John 8, 24. Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Now in the midst of that conversation, as again they were questioning our Savior, Jesus rather powerfully pointed out that, look, there is a rather exclusive and fine-pointed means and channel, if you will, and those that don't believe are going to die in their sins. And he even went so far as to say, believe on me, referring to him, of course. Doesn't it seem as if, again, there's a rather powerful element of exclusion? Anybody that doesn't believe in the Lord as the Messiah, that doesn't believe in Him as the Son of God, that doesn't believe in that which He accomplished at Calvary and the aftermath of that beautiful sacrifice. Salvation is not a possibility. Look at the fourth one. In addition to those, Jesus said it like this, borrowing the language of Luke 13. He had just been asked a question about the features involved in the livelihood of some of that day. And in that discussion, Jesus said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now that's a rather broad statement. Everybody that doesn't repent will perish. 
everyone that does it involve themselves in that act of recognition whereby they turn from a life of sin and invest in the characteristic of faithful obedience, they'll perish. That's what the Lord said. And as if that first verse wasn't sufficient, He reiterated it two verses later in Luke 13, 5, yet again. By this point, it seems as if our appreciation is rather keen and very much on point. It's not hard to understand these statements. The next one takes us to this point. In 1 Peter 3, 21, Peter, of course, was discussing with those who were suffering great trials, those who, in fact, were greatly influenced in a number of other ways. And to that group, he said, Do you recall Noah? Do you remember the life and times of Noah wherein only eight souls were saved by water? There was a large number that perished. They weren't aboard the ark. And in that discussion, he then jumped right into this presentation. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Among other things, Peter rather interestingly affirmed that baptism saves us. Well, what about the man that's not baptized then? That's an easy question to answer. That person's not saved. If baptism saves us and a person doesn't submit to that, regardless of the reason why, then that person cannot be regarded as saved. The language that the God of heaven selected and chose to present His infallible, inspired, perfect, and pure Word is a word that has a strong element of exclusiveness to it, doesn't it? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If it's possible then to be right with God without coming through the Lord, then the Bible's a liar. It simply can't be trusted on that point or any other. It presents that which ultimately is contradictory. You and I certainly would never wish to found a faith, any element of faith, on something like that. Look at that next one with me. The lesson text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago, Brother Dennis read to us from the opening chapter of the book of 2 Thessalonians. Let me, in fact, take you back up to verse 7, and we'll start reading at that point. Would you listen with me to the opening stanza, the saga that begins this inspired letter? Obviously, it is the second letter in this group of letters to the Thessalonians, and the first letter had been one that pointed out a number of issues, a number of matters that were troubling that congregation. But could I point out the second coming of Christ was a critical part in Paul's presentation. And now as we transition into the second epistle, listen to how it begins. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels... That church knew a bit about trouble. And to those that were troubled, Paul rather resoundingly said, Look, to you who are troubled, rest with us. With Paul, with others of the faith, rest with us. And you notice he described it like this. Jesus is coming with His mighty angels. 
And now this description continues. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Paul thus highlighted, rest with us, and then he immediately points this out. It will not be an occasion of rest for some. It will not be an occasion of pleasantness for some. Who? Them that know not God. Them that obey not the gospel. Doesn't that make it very strong? If one is disobedient to the gospel... Doesn't matter the reason why. If one is disobedient to that, there's flaming fire. There's eternal separation from the God of heaven, a time of doom and perdition. May I say that passages like this one make the point rather easy to answer in some ways. Why don't we close that slide like this? The last few passages to which I turned your attention ask us to ponder this. In the Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 and following, there's a prescription, a description about that great white throne scene of judgment where the books are opened. And one of the books that's opened is the book of life. And that book has the names of the saved. Those, you see, who have taken the liberty and those who have responded in faith. You and I have already noticed in many of these verses Salvation is connected to obedience. Those that have, that have obeyed the gospel have their names placed in this wonderful book. And as they continue to live faithfully, that name remains in that book. And yet in that text, we notice John the Revelator pointed out that those whose names are not in that book are cast into an eternal lake burning with fire and brimstone. Isn't it a serious thing to contemplate not obeying the gospel? The last two verses are these. Jesus said, again, as we've already noted, that He is the one and only way to the Father. And Peter highlighted that again in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I would think we then can come full circle. What do we make then of that set of circumstances of individuals who've never heard the gospel? Those who have yet to obey it. This next slide will journey us forward by making several observations. I began this lesson by painting that set of circumstances. Well, doesn't this make God out to be unfair? Those people that live in places that have never heard it. Should you and I charge God with unfairness in light of this? Should we charge Him with being inequitable? Look at a few statements on that slide with me. As you and I have already pointed out the nature of it, could we first point out this? There is no question that God absolutely loves every human being to the point that He sent His Son to offer that sacrifice for that individual, be it man or woman, be it child or adult, be it someone living in a sophisticated society like our own, or someone on the outskirts of a distant African jungle, 
God loves all people. And that love was manifested again in the clarity of what the Lord accomplished. Are we not told in 1 John 2, 2, He died for the sins of every man. Doesn't matter where. Doesn't matter the color of the skin. Doesn't matter other particulars of that individual's life. Every accountable being is such that the Lord shed His blood for that person. It is for that reason I might make that next statement. God's love for all people, highlighted in that language, leads me to offer the following thought to you. What would it say about the death of our Savior if those who have not heard the gospel and those who have not responded to it can be saved without it? You may want to think about that. What would it say about the death of the Master if a person could be saved without it? The answer is rather evident. It would mean that the Lord died needlessly. It would mean that He died without real cause. If a person could be saved without the blood of the Savior, then there was no reason for Him to die, especially the way He did. Frankly, there was no reason for Him to even come from heaven. But maybe the idea should be stated, as you can see near the bottom of that slide, if a person can be saved without obeying the gospel, there's real no need for the gospel. And yet Paul highlighted in, for you and me in the closing words of Galatians chapters 2 and 3, the fact that he would never frustrate the grace of God for Jesus died in vain. Wouldn't it be terrible to contemplate the Lord dying in vain? to proceed through the excruciating agony that He did, and yet for it to have been in vain, to be unnecessary. May I remind each of us that in that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Don't you know that it was possible if somebody can be saved without the gospel? You may notice that the Heavenly Father allowed Him to go to the cross the next day. It was not possible for it to be any other way. As you and I close that slide, isn't it fair to say, you and I don't want to believe that the Bible is a, is a book of lies. And so many of these verses we've just highlighted point out that it is absolutely necessary to be obedient to the gospel in order to be saved. What about the second statement that sometimes you may well hear, and you and I may have even thought about it? What does it say about evangelism? What does it say about the oft-found verses that point to the need for and the interest in evangelism? If it was possible for a person to be saved without the gospel... The absolute worst thing you and I can ever do is preach to them. We ought to bring every missionary from every country around the globe home. The absolute worst thing we can do is preach to them because if they hear it and don't believe it, they're lost. But you and I know that Jesus commanded evangelism. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. 
that's Mark's accounting of this. What about Matthew's accounting? In some ways, it has one element that even strengthens it. It reads like this. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all way, even to the end of the world. What about Luke's version? In Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, Luke pointed out in his writing, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins might be preached among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You can easily see with me then how that the very character of evangelism hinges on this. You and I must be absolutely convicted that those who are not obedient to the gospel are lost. On that slide, I've invited you to note that that contradiction really leads you to that third point. Do you remember how we began this discussion? But what about these innocent people that never heard the gospel? Is God really going to judge them as lost? May I ask what you mean by the word innocent? What does it mean to use it in that kind of a context? And what does the individual mean that might say that? May I make this assertion? There are no innocent people in that condition. None. There aren't any. Because sin is what separates a person from God. Just the fact they haven't heard the gospel is not what separates them from God. It's the fact they've committed sin. That is the thing that has brought them to be unfavorably God's sight. And that element in sinfulness, I'm sure, brings verses like Romans 1 verse 20 before us. What does that text remind us of? Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, as Paul wrote that particular statement to that congregation at Rome, he pointed out to them, they are without excuse. They're without excuse. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, there are no people that would be innocent in that way. That person has committed sin. The consideration of that text of Romans 1.20 does encourage us to recognize that God's handiwork is all about us. And every person is able to appreciate the nature of that handiwork and to draw the conclusions of the existence of God. Is it any wonder the closing part of that slide would help us see the following? We have an urgency. You and I as Christians then have a particular mindset of understanding how critical the gospel is obedience to it, and the sweet place that it occupies. This next slide will develop that a little bit more thoroughly by way of a consequence. And the consequence is this one. Each and every one of us is such that there is a circle of people whom we may influence, many of whom have not obeyed the gospel. It may be friends, neighbors, co-workers, schoolmates, acquaintances, or otherwise. 
but a circle of people who may well look to you and to me in one way or another. May I remind each of us how critical it is that we live a pure life directed to the things of the gospel so that they see in us how critical that gospel is. That they see in us how our love for the Father, our conviction with regard to the Lord, motivates us to eschew the things of evil, to cling to that which is good, even when those around us often speak of, it, speak of a different thing. You and I must live a good example, a godly one. In 1 Timothy 4, verse number 12, Paul highlighted that to none other than Timothy himself. In fact, be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in purity, in faith. In other words, Timothy lived in a society that was quite frankly about as bad as our own. The ancient city of Ephesus was not a noteworthily godly place. Timothy, above all else, make sure that you live in a way that's godly and right. Recognizing that there will be others who might have a curiosity about the way you live and why you do it that way. Again, that part at least is expected of you and me. But look what else is on that slide. We are each as Christians encouraged, strongly so, even commanded, that we be involved in evangelism. Sharing the gospel in the ways that you and I have access to. May I point out that does not mean public speaking in every case. There are those blessed and are able to work in that arena. But each of us, in an individual way, can touch the lives of somebody else. We've already mentioned the particular example, but what about the other means? Are there family members or close friends of the family? Or again, someone with whom you have a close relationship at work or otherwise? Can you invite them to the upcoming gospel meeting? Absolutely. Can you offer to them an appreciation? If they don't have a Bible, buy them one. If they don't have an easy access to the things of truth, help make sure that they see somewhat about that significance. But we each can at least be involved in some element of that work in evangelism. That just invites us to share the message of what motivates us, this sweet truth we've learned about this morning. You and I know one of the reasons why. That person apart from it, and that person in disobedience to it, will remain lost. That condition will never change. And they're going to have to face the God that made them in the judgment and find themselves derelicting of their duty. And we certainly don't want that to happen to them. We would not wish that to be their case, that to be their lot. That evangelism of which we've read already, perhaps takes us to 1 Corinthians 9, 21. Do you recall with me how interested Paul was in this? In that passage, Paul pointed out that I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. He was so urgent in regard to his hopefulness that others would hear and that they would respond in faith to the gospel. You and I can certainly have that same motivation. And we can have that same love 
for the souls of, of, of others that you and I may well know. I've listed on that slide just a small sampling of some of the things that you and I can actually do. The printed page. You could take some of those little pamphlets we have out there in the foyer. Pass them out to a friend. It may not be that you have a long extended discussion with them, but maybe they'll read it. And maybe they will perhaps at some point have questions about it. Maybe they will even have a desire to come in response to your invitation that they might attend one or more of our services. Wouldn't that be wonderful? In addition to that printed page, could I offer this thought? There's all kinds of resources available on the Internet. Print out some of them. Share those particulars with them. If they have asked you at some point in the past a question, maybe you can find some resources or ask one of our elders. They might can point you to resources. And with those resources, you might can share that with them. And in time, a conversation, maybe a Bible study might even develop. This day and time, there seems to be a significant utility of social media. Be it Facebook, be it one of the other avenues of social media, many congregations share particulars of their evangelistic work and other elements of their work. Maybe you could use that in a personal way. Saying things about the Lord, the Bible, the church. May I offer this innocent thought? When you do use social media, Never, ever, may I say never, leave any negative impression about the Lord's church. Never. Because others are watching that. And you never want to leave any kind of a distasteful thing concerning the Lord's church. So may I say, when we do use social media, let's make sure to exalt the church, to lift it high, use it, that medium, to encourage the great work that the church itself is involved in. I've also mentioned that you and I might use other avenues. We here at the congregation support GBN. If you have opportunity, watch that. Maybe invite a friend to watch it with you or encourage them to tune in as well. If there's a particular program that has excited you, it might well incite, excite your friend as well. The next point would be, may I remind us of our upcoming gospel meeting. Two weeks from today, and that's not very long, two weeks from today, Brother Glenn Colley will be with us for a series of meetings on Sunday through Wednesday of that week, and we certainly are such that we anticipate he will have made his preparation to share with us messages of truth and encouragement, messages that are needful for you and me. But may we make sure that we've done our work, inviting others, encouraging others, Offer to give people rides if that's what they need. At the very least, we wish to encourage ourselves in the work of the faith, understanding that a work such as this one is not just an annual habit. We wish for it to be a meaningful proclamation of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as you and I close that slide, isn't it true that this is also a reminder that those who have not heard need to hear. We can't make other statements of hopefulness in regard to them. Let's close our lesson like this. We began our study, our consideration today, with those who've not heard. But isn't it true it's sin that causes an individual to be lost? 
And there's only one remedy, only one means of forgiveness from that sin, and it involves the gospel. Oh, what a message we have. What a blessing we have that we can share it as we give thought to not only this upcoming meeting, but, yea, in a more general way, the broad characteristics of our lives as Christians. As we close this lesson this morning, examining ourselves and analyzing ourselves, may we be reinvigorated with the thought of the preciousness of the prize we have. You recall in Matthew 13, at one point, Jesus likened the kingdom to a treasure hidden in a field. Precious, amazingly extravagant. Well, you and I have this preciousness. We're in the church, and we want to share that with others as well. If there's someone that's in need of publicly responding to the gospel today, we want you to know that the Lord loves you, and we do too. And we would extend to you this convenient time of invitation, encouraging you to come. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that like this. Believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have known that way of life, and in fact were anchored in it for at least a while, but maybe in time you've begun to live in a way that's, quite frankly, not good. You've brought maybe reproach upon the name Christian. Maybe your service in regard to the church has been very lacking. Well, today, we'd love to re-encourage you, even as the Lord will do the same. If we could help in that way today, if it's been matters of sins known publicly, confess them, make repentance of them, and we'll be honored to pray to God with you. If we could help at this particular moment in time, Brother Eddie has chosen this song of encouragement, and we'll use this as a time to encourage you to come while together we stand and while we sing.